0: The Old Testament book of Exodus in chapter number 3. Remember, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, so you might be able to find it fairly quickly. Genesis, Exodus. So Exodus in chapter number 3. We're in a brand new series of the life and ministry of Moses. As we examine this man of God who was used as a powerful instrument, and we watched as God has been preparing this young man. We had watched as God had started off by giving us the history of what is going on in Egypt that there rose up a Pharaoh who knew not... Uh, Joseph, and they realized that this population of 70 people have now sprung up to a million people, and now where we're at, to about 2.5 million people. This alarmed the Egyptian people so much that they started to try to put restrictions on the births that were occurring among the Hebrew people, so much so that they had ordered the midwives to kill any male child. When the midwives did not obey as they feared the Lord, that the Egyptians were now passed, that if you see a Hebrew baby, that's male, you were supposed to drown him in the sea. And with this, we have a mother by the name of Jochebed who saw her son and knew that God wanted to use him in a special way. And so she gave him to the Lord, did the hardest thing she ever did, commend him to the Lord, take her hands off of and allow God to to uh, take care of him, then God gave him back to her and she raised that child for about five to seven years until he was weaned and then brought into the palace. During that time, Moses had the best education, the best opportunities, the best influence, and for 40 years he lived in the palace. But he also had in mind that he was supposed to be the deliverer, and we saw the actions when he did things in his own strength. It failed horribly, and after he failed trying to do things God's work in his own way, that he fled and he went into the land of Midian. We explain that Midian was on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula, on the other, um, on the east side of the eastern arm of the red sea remember the red sea has two branches the gulf of aquaba and the gulf of qatar and that what happened is that we see it goes past sinai peninsula into what we call saudi arabia and a land called midian which is on the coast of the eastern arm of the red sea and there moses settled down he became a shepherd and was there for another 40 years and now as Moses is 80 years old we now see that God is doing something in his life notice with me if you don't mind in the book of Exodus in chapter number three the book of Exodus in chapter number three and notice with me in verse one now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert, and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the mist of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed." And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place where." on thou standest is holy ground moreover he said i am the god of thy father the god of abraham the god of isaac the god of jacob and moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon god And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by the reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down. "...to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, and unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Prezites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them." When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I came unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you. And they shall say unto me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am and he said thus shalt thou say to the children of Israel I am hath sent me unto you and God said moreover unto Moses thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel the Lord God of your fathers the God of Abraham the God of Isaac the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you this is my name forever And this is my memorial unto all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together, and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you. "...and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt... ...unto the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Prezuzites... ...and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, unto the land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to thy voice. And thou shalt come, and thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt... And ye shall say unto them, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and now let us go. We beseech thee three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go no not by a mighty hand and i will stretch out my hand and smite egypt with all my wonders which i will do in the midst thereof and after that he will let you go and i will give you this people favor in the sight of the egyptians and it shall come to pass that when you go ye shall not go empty but every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her her that sojourneth in her house, jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase, actually a name of God that God refers to Himself? In the book of Exodus in chapter number 3. The book of Exodus in chapter number 3. And notice with me in verse number 14. Exodus chapter 3 in verse 14. Notice what God calls himself. I am that I am. I am that I am. And with this, we want to preach a message about I am that I am. Maybe subtitle it, The Calling of Moses. The Calling of Moses. Let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. A God who is worthy to be worshipped. Worthy to be served. You're worthy of our adoration and praise. Moreover, God, you're a living God. That is, we're talking, our prayers aren't just be carrying by the wind and lifted off somewhere. They're not bouncing off the ceiling. But we're talking to a real living being. I'm asking that we would learn more about you today. That you would show us, reveal yourself, illuminate yourself to us through your precious word that we could know more about you, trust you ourselves, and see that you have something you want us to do. Again, the best I know how, I surrender myself even now and ask that you fill me with your precious spirit so that you can get your own work accomplished through your precious word. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to Moses' life, Moses assumes that life is over. He's 80 years old, and at 80 years old, most of you would probably really be seriously considering retirement. But God says, "No, I got plans for you. Aren't you glad that God could even use old people? That you're never too old to be used of the Lord? that God has plans? That as long as you have breath and life and strength, God wants to use you. And so here is Moses. He thinks it's all over. He's been enjoying life. Forty years he spent in Egypt. Forty years now he's in the backside of the desert. He's all by himself, not seeing any other Hebrew people, no other believers. He's by himself, figure things are all over. I tried, I failed, I'm on to the next phase of my life. But that is exactly when God says, I want to use you. As we see this, when God is drawing Moses to himself, there's a couple things I want to show you from this passage. The very first thing I'd like to show you is God's holy ground. God's holy ground. So Moses is off as a shepherd in the backside of the desert. Notice with me in verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert, and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. Now Horeb is also equivalent to Mount Sinai. This will be important later on when we're identifying where Mount Sinai is, but here is here is Moses, he's on the backside of the desert. Remember that Egypt had controlled what we call the Sinai Peninsula, and so he was not back in Egypt. He is in what we would now call Saudi Arabia. He's on the backside of the desert tending to the sheep. He's trying to make sure they have enough food and enough uh, water. He's trying to take care of them, just doing his job, 40 years, the simple life. But it was in those 40 years that God says... I got a plan for you. Verse number two. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burned with fire, and the bush was not concerned. So what we see here is Moses is minding his own business. It's another day like every other. And all of a sudden, there's a bush that gets his attention. This bush is burning. Okay, well, it's burning, so I want to investigate it. As he begins to look, he noticed the bush was not consumed. What does this mean? Well, I don't know if you've been out to the backside of the desert, but where I'm from in Phoenix, we have something called tumbleweeds. And they're all over the place. And that's kind of the desert brush you have. Now, tumbleweeds are known because they're very brittle and they're very flammable. If you light a tumbleweed on fire... It burns quickly. But here is a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. You're not watching the, the bush become blackened and shrivel in in itself. You're not watching it as it catches on fire that the fire dies out because it's running out of fuel to burn. But instead it's burning at a steady pace and the bush is not getting blackened. It's not being consumed. It's not burning up. It's not disintegrating. It's staying there. Now that's an amazing phenomenon. Any of us who have any tiny bit of curiosity would be amazed by that too. Well this is something I haven't seen before. I mean Moses has seen fires. There's probably plenty of times that he's been out with a flock and he's had a fire. And he had to keep putting logs on the fire. Keep putting brush in the fire because it burns up. But here is a bush that's on fire. And not getting burned up. Notice something else we see. Verse number 3. And Moses said, I will now turn aside. Now this is a phrase that's used in these two verses. In verse number 3 and 4. What this carries the idea is that God was not placing the burning bush in Moses' path. Because Moses is going a different direction. God is over here. And he wants Moses to turn aside to go follow after God. God is purposely over to the side wanting the people to change their direction. They have to make a choice. Moses could have walked on and not ran into it. It wasn't in front of him. It was to the side. And he had to purposely make a decision to turn aside... And go to the bush. Verse number 3. And Moses said I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he Moses turned aside to see. So it wasn't until Moses made the decision to turn towards the Lord. That the Lord spoke to him and revealed himself to him. God always does this. That God is always previous. He reaches our hand out. But he waits till we make a decision to follow after him. Then he reveals who he is. That's how God has always worked. He wants us to know about him, but he wants us to put forth the effort. The Bible gives so many promises of to seek and you shall find. God is not playing spiritual hide and seek where he's always around the corner and always somewhere where we're not. But he wants us to put forth the effort to look for him and he will be found. So verse number four. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him in the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he, that's God, said, draw not nigh hither. So don't come any closer until you do this. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. Now, as a little child when I read this, this always confounded me. I, for years, trying to figure out, why is this a big deal? Why is it that God said, Moses... Take off your shoes. Now, one of the reasons why it befuddles me is because I hate bare feet. Feet are some of the ugliest things ever. I hate looking at them. And I hate running around in bare feet. I don't like running outside. Now, I understand that people from Tennessee out there, they're barefoot all the time. And that's their natural state. But for me, I no. I like shoes. I, You ask my family. I am so crazy about it. I don't even like sandals. I'm in... I used to wear cowboy boots all the time. When I see sandals, what I want to do is I want to take the back of my heel drive it in and say, get some shoes on. I mean, So to me, I'm giving you my personal thing why this was even worse for me. Why is God telling him to take off his shoes? He's in the desert. There's obviously briars and bushes, bushes out here. No, why? Well, it was through the study of finding out because I want to find out this question. Why did God take him to tell him to take off his shoes? There's got to be something important about this. There's got to be something... Significant about this, I mean, why didn't he say, take off your cloak? Why didn't he say, wash your hair? Why, why did he say, take off your shoes? The reason is, is because feet are a sign of creation. The evidence of feet prove we were created. We know that God as, is a spirit. He doesn't have feet. But when he created us, he created feet. And it was proof we are created. And so as he's standing before his creator, he's asking Moses to take his shoes off as a sign of humbleness before God to look down and say, you are the creator, I am the creation. Here is proof I am. Am created, I have feet. We see that later on in Isaiah chapter 6. We have the seraphims who are flying around and they have the three pairs of wings. With twain they did fly, with twain they covered their face, and with twain they covered their feet. Because as they're in the holiness of God, in the presence of God, they're covering their feet as a sign of humbleness before their creator. This idea of feet. This is a significant thing here. So Moses, you are standing before your creator. I want you to take off your shoes. And I want you to be reminded you were created. Now, this is some big things. Because the question is going to be asked, which God am I talking about? And God says, I want to tell you up front, I am your creator God. I am the God who made you. You are standing between the God who made the heavens and the earth. We'll get more into that in a second. But he told him to take him off. For the place that thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am. Notice that's in the present tense. I am present tense, the God of thy father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is announcing who he is. He says, I am present tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, at this time, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not alive. Moses could not go to their house and say, hey, how are you doing? But what God is saying is that even though they lived and they died, I am still currently present tense, their God, because they are alive somewhere forever. They are currently existing somewhere. I am still present tense. Even though they do not have the physical body on this earth. I am still present tense. They are God. They are alive forever. Jesus is going to make reference of this later on. Uh, We might as well hit it now. Because it is in the context here. But God is saying I am present tense. Let me tell you. I wasn't just previously. I once was the God of Abraham. I once was the God of Jacob. I once was the God of Isaac, I am currently present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, even this has the idea, this title of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a significant phrase. I may do a study on that later on, but let me give you a little brief thing. Abraham was the friend of God. And God says, I'm the the God of the guy who was the friend of God. I am the one who is the God of the child of promise. I'm the one who keeps my word. And I gave him this. But then the idea that I'm also the God of Jacob. You know what Jacob was? He was a liar. God says, I'm even the God of him. Because I was able to take the liar and turn him into Israel, the prince of God. God's able to do things. He's not only the God of... Those who are friends. He's not only the God of one who answers prayers. But he's also the God of everyone. And he's able to turn their life around. That's a different study for later on. But God. There's so much in just this passage here. That we could unload and just spend so much time in chapter 3. But we're just seeing, first of all, God's holy ground. That God directs Moses. And he's saying, let me tell you who I am, Moses. Starting off, I am your creator. Moses, starting off, I am the God of present tense. I am the living God of living souls of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The living souls. Abraham, I am... Or Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the friend of God. I am the God... Of Isaac, the child of promise. I am the God of Jacob, the liar. Because I'm able to change lives. I am this God, Moses. How would you respond when God announces himself like this to you? Moses is definitely intrigued. Something that's never happened to him before. He has come face to face with Almighty God. And God wants something from him. Moses was able to understand who God was. And he was afraid to look upon the presence of God. To look within the bush. This is the creator God. The living God. Which brings us to a second thing. As Moses is now introduced to who God is. And we could see God's holy ground. Now we can see something else. God's personal name. God's personal name. Notice, if you don't mind, as we continue with this in verse number seven. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by the reason of the taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Moses is there standing before God and God says, Moses, I've been listening to the prayers and the cries of the people down in Egypt. I've been listening to their burdens. I want to let you know I'm going to do something about it. He says, for I know their sorrows. That word know here means to have experiential knowledge of. God says, I have experiential knowledge of the sorrows that the people of Israel are going through now. I know their hurts. I know what they're going through. And I've got a plan. I've got something to do for it. Verse number 8. And I, this is God, am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land unto a good land and a large land unto a land flowing with milk and honey and to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Prezites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. So God's now saying, Moses, I've got a plan. I've been listening to them. I know personally what they've been going through. And I'm out here in the backside of the desert to let you know I've got a plan. And I'm going to do something about it. Now, Moses probably right now would be thinking, Okay, why aren't you in Egypt taking care of this then? You heard their prayers. Why aren't you taking care of it? And God is saying, I am taking care of this. That's why we're speaking, Moses. Moses, I'm going to let you know what my plan is. Notice verse number 9. And now therefore behold the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me. And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore and I will send thee unto Pharaoh that thou mayest bring forth my people the children of Israel out of Egypt. So Moses, he started off by saying Moses before you know anything I want to let you know who I am. I'm God. I'm the living God. I'm the God who could change lives. I'm the God who's working. And I'm the God who heard all their prayers. And Moses, I brought you out here in the backside of the desert to have a conversation, let you know that I'm sending you. How I'm going to answer all their prayers is you. How would you like to be told that? That you're going to be the answer to prayers of two and a half million people. Moses didn't want the job. He asked him 40 years ago, he would have jumped at the chance. In fact, he tried to take it upon himself. But after these 40 years living in defeat, living with not a victorious life, hiding in the backside of the desert, he's now at the place where he says, no, I can't. He's going to give objections, but to listen to God say, this is how I'm going to answer the prayers I'm sending you. How would you feel if you were there to have that news? That you are going to be used to bring deliverance to 2.5 million people. To bring them out of their bondage. To get them away from their oppressor. Would you feel like you were able? Would you feel like you had the power, the confidence, the training, the skill set? Verse number um, 11. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses said, who am I? I'm a nobody. I've been out in the desert for 40 years. I'm old. I'm 40. And we're going to see the objections later on. Who am I? You see, that's where Moses' problem began. He was looking at himself instead of looking at the God who could. That's why God introduced himself in the first place. God said, Moses... Take off your shoes. I'm the creator. Moses, I am the living God. Moses, I'm the miracle working God. Moses, I'm the God who heard the prayers. And I'm sending you. And Moses didn't catch it. He's not looking at God, but he's looking at himself. I can't do this. And God didn't say, I didn't say, could you? I said, I am going to use you. Because it's not dependent upon you, Moses. It's dependent upon me. By the way, what pride and arrogance is it when God says, I want you to do something, to turn around and say, I can't. What pride and arrogance is it? What self-delusion is it? The God who made us, the God who created us, the God who prepared us, when he says, go do this, and for us to say, I can't. You know what that is? That's doubting God. That's telling God that he's wrong. And that's always a bad position to be. You know what Moses just said? God, you're wrong. Don't send me. I'm not the person for the job. You're mistaken. God's not mistaken about anything. God knows what he's doing. And he knows how to prepare us. But God has to spend this time. Backside of the desert. To try to get Moses to stop looking at himself. And look at the God that he can. It's always interesting as we study the word of God. It takes God a lot longer to prepare the messenger to go. Than what it does for the actual message to go out and do its work. Look at the preparation for Jonah. It took a lot longer to get Jonah to do what he was supposed to do. Over and over you see this. Where the people are dragging their feet. They're giving objections. They're telling God why he can't. And God has to spend so much time getting them to be convinced that God can. Then when they finally get there, they say a couple words. And all of a sudden, a half a million people in Nineveh get saved. God's able to do it. By the way, it takes a lot for God to get us to go and trust God. And if we just trust God, it's nothing for God to use us. It takes nothing. People get saved. People get right. It just God's trying to convince us to stop looking at ourselves and look at God. God's got it handled. But how dare we say, God, I can't. Someone will say, well, what if God asks me for something that I can't do? God won't ask you to do something you can't do. But God may ask you to do something you don't know you could do yet. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Can you trust God? And can you get your eyes off of yourself enough to say, God, you can do it. I trust you. You could do anything. You can use anything, even a broken instrument like me. So now he's preparing Moses, and Moses gives the objection Who am I? Who am I? Verse 12, God answers. Verse, and he, God, said, Certainly. I will be with thee. Moses, the thing is, is that I'm not sending you by yourself. I will be with you. By the way, God plus one is always a majority. As long as we have God, we can face anything. When you go back and study the life and ministry of Elijah. When Elijah stood before Ahab, you know what he said? I'm standing before you, but I'm also standing before God. God's with me. You know why I could tell Ahab that it's not going to rain until I say? Because God's with me. That's the whole secret is God's presence. God doesn't send us out by ourselves. He goes with us. And it's God's power that gets it done. He just wants us to go with him. Notice as it goes on in verse 12. And he, that's God, said, certainly I will be with thee. And this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. Moses, let me tell you, I'm going to give you proof that I sent you, that you're going to go in, get the people, and you're going to come back and worship at this mountain. That should be evidence that, yes, that was correct. You know, I love that idea the Bible talks about in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove the good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. You know, when it says prove, that means that you have evidence. That means as I stepped out and said, I believe this is God's will, God will come back and give us proof and evidence that we did what we were supposed to. Moses Let me tell you, you can prove the good and acceptable will of God when you come back to this exact spot to worship me with those people. That will be your proof that I sent you. That's your evidence there. Verse number 13, And Moses said to God, Behold, when I shall come to the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me, What is his name and what shall I say unto them? Now, this doesn't sound like a big deal to us. But let me remind you that the people, the children of Israel are inside of Egypt. And Egypt historically has more gods than any other culture except for maybe the Hindu people. And even then it's close. That each one of the villages of Of Egypt had their own God. They had gods all over the place. I understand you may watch a documentary or movie about Egypt. And it looks like it's um, a very atheistic society. But everything they did was religious. When they woke up in the morning there was a religious ceremony. To bake a cake there was a religious ceremony. To go to bed at night there was a religious ceremony. Everything about the Egyptian life... Was religious. And they had a God for this. And a God for this. And a God for this. And a God for this. They had thousands of gods. And so they have heard before. That sure this God can do this for you. And this God could do this for you. It's almost like there's a pitch. For this God is better than this. And serve this God. And serve this God. So this is a legitimate thing. Especially with uh, Moses who was raised in the palace. He knew the Egyptian culture. He knew the plethora of gods that they had. And he said, this is going to be asked that, hey, God says you're going to be freed. And they're going to say, which God? That's a legitimate question that's going to be asked. And Moses says, which God do I tell them? And God says, this is what you tell them. Verse 14. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shall thou say unto the children of Israel, I am have sent me unto you. Now, what God has done is revealed his personal name of God. Now, beforehand, we had two titles of God that were used predominantly. You would have God, capital G-O-D. This would carry the idea of God's proper name his official station his official title that he is the elohim he is the all creator god the all-powerful god he is the elohim another name of god that was used predominantly would be the almighty god the all-powerful god the omnipotent god you'll see that name all throughout the book of job and a lot before uh, in the patriarch age the almighty god But now we come to a brand new name that has now been revealed, God's personal name of Jehovah. And this carries the idea that God is the self-sufficient, the self-sustaining one. The God that doesn't need anything from anyone else. We were talking about this morning in Sunday school, about this is one of God's attributes, that he is self-sustaining, that he is needs nothing else that some of you when you wake up in the morning in order for you to function you need coffee you need that functioning you need an outside source to power you up we all need food we all need water we all need air we are dependent on so many things but god is not dependent on anything God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need gas to run the machine. He doesn't need naps to keep going forward. He doesn't age. He is timeless. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need drink. He doesn't need relaxation. He doesn't need vacations. He doesn't need a sleep. He is self-sufficient. He is self-existing. And he said, Moses, you tell them the true and living God. The God that doesn't need anything from anyone to exist, to live, to function. That's the God that in you. You tell them the most powerful God in all of the universe that's the God that sent you. The great I am. And by the way, the Hebrew people took this title personally. And they referred to God as the great I am. This is why even in Jesus' day, as you're reading through the gospel record of John especially, that Jesus said, I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And you watch the Hebrew people start taking rocks and get ready to stone. And Jesus said, time out. Why are you going to kill me? Because you claim to be God. Okay, I just wanted to hear you say it, time in. Over and over he would stop. Because the Hebrew people took this personally when he said, I am, I am. Because this is what they identified God as. The self-sufficient one. The self-existing one. The God who is the most powerful. It doesn't need anything else from anyone else. That's the God that sent them. Verse number 15. We now come to a different idea here. It says, and God said moreover unto Moses, thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you, and this is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations, that you would know me as the I am. Now you'll find this all throughout the Old Testament. in The authorized version. With the idea of the capital L. Capital O. Capital R. Capital D. Whenever you see the, Lord, the name Lord in capital letters. It's carrying the idea of this personal name of God. This self-sufficient. Self-existing one. This powerful personal name of God. It's more than a title. It is his personal name. That he wants you to know him as. The God who controls and runs everything. So Moses, when you, they ask you, who's the one that sent you? You said, the great I Am sent you. The self-existing one. By the way, that's the same God who was the God of Abraham. The same God who was the God of Isaac. The same God who's that the God of Jacob. That's the God who's going to deliver you. That's the God who's going to work. Now we get brought up to something else. We saw God's holy ground. Then we see God's personal name. Third thing that we see is God is calling Moses to a work is God's mighty arm. God's mighty arm. Notice, if you don't mind, as we hit verse 16 Go. So he's telling Moses to go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord, that personal name of God, and then God after that the proper title of God the Lord God of your fathers the God of Abraham the God of Isaac the God of Jacob and of Jacob appeared unto me saying I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt and I have said I will bring you out of the affliction of the Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hittites And the Jebusites unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And they, the elders, shall hearken unto thy voice. And thou shalt come, and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews... Hath met with us, now let us go, we beseech thee, three days journey into the wilderness, and we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Now, if you put a period there and then just ended it, you have this Moses, you go back, you tell the elders that the personal God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent me, and we're going to go talk to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, let my people go. And you would almost expect that, all right, happy ending. Pharaoh says good. But you know, God is honest with Moses. Notice what he says, verse 19, and I, this is God speaking, and I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. God is honest with Moses and explains it's not going to be easy, nor is it going to be immediate. Part of our problem when we try to serve God is we expect God to get his magic wand and that we just get in contact with something and all of them immediately, I saw the evilness of my ways, please, I want to be right. But that's not how it works. Sometimes it takes a while for God to get across to someone, to work with them, to show them that he is real. They have to be convinced of it, especially the enemies of God. Pharaoh is not going to go easily. He's not going to just let them go and let two and a half million people walk away, this labor force. So you know what God's going to do? Notice in verse number 20. And I will stretch out my hand, this mighty hand, and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after, he will let you go. Let me pause here. You know, Moses forgot about this part. He goes up to the people of Egypt, or uh, Hebrews, and said, hey, God's going to let us go. They go up to Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, what are you talking about? You guys obviously have too much time to do. I'm going to give you more work. And now everybody's grumbling at Moses, and Moses goes back and says, God, I thought you said he was going to let him go. God also said, it wasn't going to be immediate, and it wasn't going to be quick. I've got stuff to do yet. You know, sometimes we forget. Even Moses need to be reminded, it doesn't happen With a snap of a finger. But God is going to work. We need to be reminded. Because we get to the place where we want to quit. Because it doesn't happen right away. It didn't happen (laughs) the way I wanted to. And we throw a little fit. And go away. God says no, 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 no. I've got bigger plans. I want to show my mighty arm. I want to prove to you and the rest of the world. How big of a God that I am. And there are some people that God takes time to prove himself to. Because what it will do is it will be a witness to others. Look at what this God can do. You know, there's something about struggling. Struggling is good. Working is good. Because we have to trust God with it. Without the struggle, without With everything being so easy, we'd be weak and anemic. Many of you have heard the illustration of a butterfly inside of a cocoon. That as it's made the cocoon and it transforms into a butterfly, that it has to struggle in that cocoon. Now, if someone says, oh, that poor butterfly, I need to help it out. And if you take a knife and cut that cocoon open, the cocoon opens, the butterfly pops out, and then it dies. Say why? Because what happens is that butterfly is struggling in that cocoon. It's strengthening its wings. And when it finally pops out, its wings are strong enough to fly and carry it wherever it's supposed to go. But without that struggle, the butterfly is going to be too weak to fly and it will die. God has equipped us the same way with our faith, without a struggle, without us having to trust God by faith. If everything was just so instant, easy, we would be so weak and anemic spiritually. We wouldn't have enough power to power a gnat going on a moped across a Cheerio. We would be powerless and anemic. But there's something about struggling and trusting God when it's not easy and still believing he could do it that strengthens our faith and allows us to trust him for even more to realize who he is. But God says, this is why I'm going to do this. If Moses went straight to Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, let my people go. Oh, I'm sorry. Please go ahead and go. The people would have left But they wouldn't have seen the power of God. But notice what else God wanted to do with the people. Verse number 21. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall come to pass that when you go, ye shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house. Jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters. And ye shall spoil the Egyptians." God says, you know what? I'm going to do something so amazing. They're going to pay you to get out. And they're going to give everything they have to get you out of the land. Now, what's better? For you to go up to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, okay, and then you leave. Or what's better for you to say, Pharaoh, let my people go. No. Then God rains down fire. He shows his strong arm. And they're paying you to get out of town. He says, I got plans. And I'm doing this struggle to get a hold of them To help you later. I've got plans. I've got something to do. Think about that. God knows what he's doing. You know. Think about this. You may meet someone. Who needs to know the Lord. God. Says in the Bible. That you're a sinner. Because of your sin. That you've offended a holy righteous God. Because of that sin. That you deserve to go to hell. But Jesus died for you. And that all you have to do is accept Jesus your Savior. Okay, let's do that. And they get saved. Praise the Lord for that. But they never exercise any faith. And they kind of flop around and they fall out of church. But you take someone when you first give them the gospel. And they look at you and say, I don't believe any of that. And then God puts you in their path again. Hey, I remember you. Yeah, I remember you. Hey, I want to remind you that God loves you. And that we're praying for you. And God wants you to get saved. I don't want anything of that. And then after a while, God saves them. And then they get so saved. I know there's no such thing as saved, saved her, or is. But there is such a thing that they realize how much God proved himself towards them. That they have no problem serving God. And then they became leaders in the church because their God is real to them. God knows what he's doing. Which would you rather have? The guy who gets saved but never comes to church? Or the guy who gets saved and then is working in the church to get others to save? We want that last one. Because God knows what he's doing. He knows what it's going to take to prove to that person that God was there. And God was after them. And he was after them. And God proved himself that he was after them over and over and over. That God's real. I want that God. God knows what he's doing. Can you trust him? Now, again, we start off with the idea of who God is. When you recognize who God is, then we have no problems saying, yes, I'll do whatever you tell me to do, because we realize it's not dependent on us. The problem is when we look at ourselves and we see that we're incapable, and then we put a period there. Yes, we're incapable, but God could do anything. Even use somebody as failed and as flawed as me. I'm so thankful that God doesn't use me because of me. He uses me in spite of me. Because he's that good of a God. And God wants to use you in spite of you. Not because of you. None of you are gems. I know I may just kind of burst someone's bubble there. None of you were catches. None of you, when you got saved, God says, I'm so happy and so lucky that I got them. The Bible says, and why God commendeth his love in why we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. You were not a catch when God saved you. But he didn't throw you back, praise the Lord. He still wants to use you. He's that good of a God, he could even use you. But we have to start with this. It all begins with God. If you believe the God of the Bible is all-powerful, all-sufficient, that he's faithful, he keeps his word, he's the God of the living, he's all-powerful, then you could trust him to use you. But when you don't have a clear vision of God and you don't see him for who he is, or worse yet, when you just keep looking at yourself, that's when you're not going to do anything for the Lord. Can you Trust Him. It all begins with God and it begins with your vision of who He is. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness